Scott, have you got the little bell? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ring it up. <laughs> I'm awake. It's not like college age. I've, I've been hearing so much already that you're prone to go to sleep. So I thought I'll ring the bell. If I see Bully, Brother Walt, look, he's going off there now. <laughs> Every time Brother Wally comes to cook, the camp with me, he always tells me he's really glad he doesn't live near me. I think he's afraid he might lose his uh, sanctification or something. But... <laughs> I'll try to do my best to uh, not be too long uh, because the hour is getting a bit late. And uh, you've had a lot to eat, beautiful food. Could you turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57? I pretty much uh, know what uh, uh, Pastor Minnick's uh, theme for... The conference is he's going to take us to each of the throne room scenes in the Bible and it's been really, really good, hasn't it? Praise the Lord. Um, having introduced our subject yesterday, what I plan to do in the next uh, few messages is I'm just going to wander through the, some of the uh, prophets and uh, look for where there is uh, mention that God is great. And uh, I don't really think the word great appears in uh, Isaiah 57, but boy, this is tells us something about the greatness of God. I'd like to start by reading verses 1 and 2, Isaiah chapter 57 and uh, verses 1 and 2. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering uh, that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace, uh, they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. We'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we, we thank you so much for uh, the good uh, messages we've heard this morning. And uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for the reminder that we need to be clean vessels. And we thank you, Lord, that we are reminded also that uh, thus saith the Lord is all that we need. And uh, Father, as we consider your word to this afternoon, help us to be alert and help us to see something. Even if, Lord, it's something we already know about you, I pray that the knowing it again and being reminded of it will be a blessing to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of the martyrs of the faith, we usually think of the early Christians, especially those who died at perhaps the hands of the, the Jewish people, the, 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 uh, the people of Judah who were... Uh, you know, the first Christians, uh, they, were, they were persecuted by the Jews, uh, all the, the persecutions under the Romans. When we, we think of the martyrs of, of the faith, we, we think of uh, New Testament martyrs. But the seed of godly martyrs has been sown in every generation since Cain murdered the righteous Abel. And this was certainly the case in the days of Isaiah the prophet. And that's really what uh, Isaiah uh, 57 verses 1 and 2 are telling us. Uh, let me read them again. The righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart. They don't care. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now the consensus view is that this was written by Isaiah during the reign of wicked king Manasseh. Verse 1 begins with the righteous perish. 
And in 2 Kings 21, verse 16, we read this. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so under the reign of uh, wicked king Manasseh, uh, righteous blood flowed through the streets of Jerusalem. In fact, uh, there is a Jewish legend that Isaiah himself was eventually murdered by Manasseh, being sawn in half by Manasseh's soldiers. But before Isaiah's own death, he had to witness the worst apostasy in Judah's history, thanks to the evil rule of its king. And we get a sense of uh, the wickedness in uh, verses 3 to 10. Let me just get, uh, just, we'll just read these verses and, and just see what was happening. Verse 3. Uh, but draw near hither, uh, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Here we read of sorcery, which of course is witchcraft. And this word refers uh, uh, to the pagan activity of observing the times. And we read in 2 Kings 21 verse 6 about Manasseh. And he observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And so there was sorcery, uh, this kind of wickedness, uh, w w uh, witchcraft and wizardry uh, in Judah at this time. Uh, and, and Manasseh was involved in it. Have a look in verse 4. Against whom do you sport yourselves? Against whom make your wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? The picture here is of sinners mocking God, and not just mocking God, but mocking his truth. Have a look in verses 5 and 6. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They are, they, uh, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering and hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Here we read that in Judah at this time under the reign of King Manasseh, idolatry abounded. And we know that even children were sacrificed in pagan rituals. 2 Kings 21 verse 3 tells us Manasseh built up the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. We also know that Manasseh made his own son pass through the fires of Molech. Have a look in verses 7 and 8. Upon a lofty and high mountain thou hast set thy bed. Even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also and the posts thou hast set them up. Thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone. Uh, gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. Here we read that idolatry was performed in public on the highest hills and it was performed in the privacy of people's homes. Uh, there was even a cult which practiced prostitution as a part of its ritual. Now, I guess we would wouldn't ex we would expect that in a place like Greece or under some of those uh, pagan cultures. But this is in Judah. This is the place that where they have the temple and where they have the law of God and the priesthood. But here we see idolatry was performed all over the place, in public and in private. Have a look in verse 9. And thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfume 
and it send thy messengers far off, and debase thyself even unto hell. Because Judah couldn't depend on the Lord for safety, they sought out godly alliances there. And so they have, would have to make alliances with other nations with, which God said they were to separate from. But, but when you turn your back on the Lord, you can't call upon him for help. And so you have to look in other places. In verse 10 we read this, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. Yet saidst thou not, there is no hope, uh, that uh, thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. What this uh, is telling us is that the people actually came to the position where they didn't have any hope. And, and that tells us that sin can be very t- a very tiring way of life. And, and uh, the sinful life offers no hope. Those who are without God are without hope. And then in verses 11 and 12 we read, And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared, that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to my, thy heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. This verse tells us basically that the Lord had taken his hands off the people, and as he took his hands off the people, they just forgot him. They forgot God. Uh, they didn't fear God, and they were morally bankrupt. So when they cried out in times of trouble, the Lord wouldn't hear, and that's the first part of verse 13. We read, When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them away, vanity shall take them away. God wasn't going to listen to their prayers because of their sinful state. This was the wickedness Isaiah had to witness before he too became a casualty of the evil times. And friends, uh, if we were to go through this more carefully, uh, we would see that this description uh, could have been uh, written in 2017. Idolatry, uh, you might say, well, there's no idolatry in Australia. Well, that's, that's not true. Just go to any Catholic church and you'll find idols. Uh, there's, there's images to Mary and people bow down and they pray to them. And, but if you were to go to India and you'll see idols on every... There's probably more idols in the world today than there ever has been in history. Immorality, sorcery, that's our TV. Despising godliness and, and no fear of God. We see here uh, that sin abounded in much the same way as it does today. That was Judah of Isaiah's time. And I guess that's the same for us today. But praise God, as the Apostle Paul told the Romans, where sin abounded, uh, grace did much more abound. Because in this dark and gloomy report of Judah's uh, apostasy, there is an offer of grace from God. And that's what we read in verses 13 and 14. He said, When thou Christ let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them away. Vanity shall take them away. But, but, here's the other option. He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. In verse 13 we read of those who will trust in the Lord. These were those who would have faith in Israel's true God, 
And then in verse 14, we read about taking away the stumbling block. This would mean taking away the, the, the idols and the things that distracted them from their worship of God. And this really speaking to us of repentance. And here is a promise of entering into covenant blessings because really that's what he's telling us about. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land. These are the covenant blessings. And the promise is of entering into covenant blessings for those who repented, put away the stumbling block, and who believed, who trust in the Lord. Here is a gracious, a gracious invitation from God. And here is the place that we can all go <laughs> to have the grace of God abound to us uh, when sin abounds around us. What we need to do is repent of our sins and trust in the Lord. But back in Judah, some of Judah might have had doubts that they could trust in God. When people to continue in sin, their hearts become hard. And it seems to me that the, the longer they're away from the Lord, the harder it is to come back to the Lord. And they can worry that if they turn from their old ways, uh, the Lord might not be able to help them. And the Lord knew that this was the case for Judah. So he gave them a glimpse of who he is to show them that they could trust him. Listen, if you put away the stumbling blocks, if you repent from your sin and you turn to me and you trust in me, hey, you can be sure that I can give you those covenant blessings. And so the Lord in verse 15 gives us a glimpse, gives Judah a glimpse of who he really is and why they could trust in him. And this is really where I've been heading all along. Verse 15 is my text. And uh, I won't take too much time. That was just the introduction. <laughs> Here it is. It's a wonderful verse. For, for thus saith the high and holy one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know, there are five brief things that God wanted to tell the people of Judah about himself to, to assure them that they could trust him if they turned to him. And I want to just present these very quickly to you this afternoon. The first thing I want you to see, want you to see is his highness. The verse starts with the words, for thus saith the high and lofty one. Now this is obvious, an obvious counter to what he referred to in verse 7. Let's just read that again. Here, here was the practice of uh, many of the, Jew, the Jewish people. Upon a, a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither when, wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. This is talking about the idolatries on the high mountains of Judah. It seems ludicrous to us, I suppose. But the fact is that in Isaiah's day, you could climb the highest mountain peaks in Judah. You could visit the loftiest sites in the land. And there you would find some pagan altar where the Jews had been worshipping idols. It seemed ludicrous to us that that would happen in Judah. I've uh, travelled to a few places uh, overseas and uh, I've noticed that in Greece how many ancient temples were built on rocky headlands. And it's amazing that, that they were able to build this massive great temple uh, you know, overlooking this precipice. Uh, uh, if you've ever been to this uh, place called Delphi, uh, the, the Greeks believe that, that, it, that it was the devil of the earth. And, and, and here you see this massive temple way up uh, on the hills of Delphi. This was a, a practice of the, of, of the pagans right throughout history. Pagans like to build their temples and their altars as close to heaven as they can get. It's the sin of Nimrod 
and it's repeated in every pagan culture. But in this verse, the Lord who made the high and lofty mountains declares that you won't find him in some breezy altar uh, stuck on a mountain peak. Rather, he is the high and lofty one, and these puny little altars are an affront to his deity. You know, this verse begins with the, the, the fact that he is the high and lofty one, and this is a reinforcement of his deity. And I don't want to cut across anything Pastor uh, Minnick will say, but just flip over to Isaiah 6 just for a minute. I was hoping he wouldn't go there this morning. I uh, hoping he was going to Exodus. Isaiah 6, just as 1 and 2, uh, he'll be able to fill you in more perfectly if he takes you here. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Now the high, it says there, they saw the, the throne of the Lord high and lifted up. They're exactly the same Hebrew words as high and lofty in chapter 57. Isaiah literally saw the high and lofty one alive in the heavens, surrounded by angels. And Isaiah was, was fearful when he saw this sight of the Lord on his throne, knowing who he was. Have a look in verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, knowing who the Lord is makes us realise why he gets angry about the idols we worship instead of worshipping him. The only appropriate response to the high and lofty one is to bend the knee and worship him. Back in Isaiah 57, having seen his highness, I want us to see his habitation. That's our next point, his habitation. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity. Where does the high and lofty one live? Well, let's flip over to Second Chronicles. We'll leave you a little marker in Isaiah 57. You've got a little uh, a bookmark there from the conference. Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles, sorry, Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we see the prayer of dedication King Solomon made at the opening of the temple he built in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice um, what he said in his prayer. He just built this magnificent uh, temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it shone and shivered with gold and, and, uh, and, and uh, all, all the, the embellishments that he put on the temple. But this is what he said, verse 18, in his prayer. But will God in very deed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much left, less this house which I have built? Our God can't be housed in a, in a temple or in a building. Our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and he is everywhere all the time. So really he can't fit, be made to fit into even a large building like the temple. But, I, but, but when Isaiah says that he inhabited eternity, perhaps it doesn't just suggest or doesn't suggest where the Lord lives. 
but how long he lives. He inhabiteth eternity. You know, we mere mortals, we exist in time and space, but the Almighty doesn't, and I, I can't wrap my head around it. I can't wrap my head around eternity, but it's, it's who God is. He inhabits eternity, he always has, and he always will. There's never been an event in man's history that he hasn't witnessed. Think about that. He was there when the sun cast its first beams and when Adam took his first breath. He was there when Abraham crossed through Mesopotamia to go to Canaan. He was there to follow the journeys of the the great conquerors. He was then in this place when the first gospel song ran out from this building. And he is here this very afternoon as well as touching the rings of Saturn. That is our God. He inhabits eternity. Where does the high and lofty one inhabit? Well, although he was unlearned and a former alcoholic, little Arthur Stace knew where God lived, didn't he? Because every morning he'd go out with that chalk and although he'd never learned to read, to write, he, would, he learned how to write the word eternity and he wrote that on every footpath all around the streets of Sydney. He knew where the Lord uh, lived. He knew where God lived. He lived in eternity. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. But what's his name? What's his name? Well, the Lord tells us also here in Isaiah 57. And I want us to see our third point that I've entitled his holiness. The verse says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. So the, the name of the high and lofty one is holy. Now this could be telling us that his name is a holy name. Or it could be telling us that holy is just one of his many names. Whatever is meant in our text, both are true. His name, all of his name, all of his names are holy names. And all of his names should be sacred to his people. And so we should be very careful not to blaspheme his name or use profanity or to make an oath or... uh, to use his name, to euphemise his name like a gosh and golly and, and, and in a subtle way blaspheme his holy name. We, of all people, should name, uh, keep that name holy and know that that name is holy and sacred to us. But holy is also one of his names, just like Redeemer, just like Jehovah, just like the Lord of hosts, holy is also one of his names. Let's flip over back to Isaiah 6 uh, uh, again. I just want to read the next verse. The next two verses of Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 3. In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw, it, saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And what were they saying? And one cried unto another, I can picture this scene in heaven, the booming voice of one of the seraphim crying unto the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, his name is holy, that tripartite, holy God. Now to be holy means there is no sin or fault in God. And as his people, we are commanded, as we know, to be holy as he is holy. So all the immoral practices of Judas' pagan worship were totally opposite to the holy character and name of God. 
But he's not just a, he's not a God who is so holy and so high that he's beyond the reach of mankind. And that's what uh, this verse goes on to tell us. Let me read it to you. It says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, his name is holy. I want us to see his house. Where does he live? Well, I dwell in the high and holy place with him, also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. Here we read that where the high and lofty one lives. Here, what's his house? Where's his house? Well, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity wants to dwell with us. And this is a marvellous condescension when you... All the things that we've learned about God uh, just over this weekend and all the things we know about him through the scriptures that he would want to live with us. That's amazing. This is the holy God of eternity dwelling with sinful men. And we know that he meant it here when he said he wanted to dwell with us because he already has. He sent his own son, his holy son, to become a man and to leave us a man and to die for all mankind. You know, John told us about his coming and the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. The word was made flesh, he dwelt among us. He, he was housed among us. He lived with us and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love hearing George Beverly Shea sing that song, out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe. Only his great eternal love made my saviour go. Yes, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity is willing to make his house with us. But there's a condition attached. He will only dwell with those who are contrite, with him also that is of, of a contrite and humble spirit. Have a look over in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Here is the high and lofty one. And he's letting us know just how great he is and here's the creator and the maker. Now have a look in verse 2. For all those things hath mine hand made. And all those, sorry, for all those things hath mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. See, if we want the high and lofty one to dwell with us and to dwell in us, if we want him to be our bodies to be his house, then we need to be contrite, and we need to be humble. To be contrite really is to be crushed by the guilt of sin. It means to be truly repentant for our sin. And seeking his mercy. And David learned to be contrite the hard way, didn't he? In Psalm 51 he said, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite hearted God thou wilt not despise. We need to be broken about our sin. To be humble means that we realise that God owes us nothing. And if we're saved, that we will have to depend entirely upon his mercy. God has made it abundantly clear that he will always resist the proud but give grace to the humble. So when we, when we justify our sin or we argue about his will or question his judgments, we are lacking humility, the humility he demands. 
Notice he has promised to dwell in the high and holy place. Back in our verse, he says, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. This is a, a promise of uh, where we will dwell with him. And I guess it would, you know, there's a whole message in that, in, in this itself, and I don't intend to go into it, but this is a promise of that, well, Paul told the Colossians, didn't he? That those in Christ, in whom Christ dwells, are also mystically seated with him in the heavenlies. We might be sitting here, Christ dwells with us, but mystically we are dwelling with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's what he's saying, how I will dwell in high and holy, in, in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. But he won't just come and dwell with us, he wants to also help us, and that's our fifth point. I want you to see his help, because he goes on to say, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And here it is, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Here we see his help. The high and lofty one wants to revive the contrite and the humble. Now, the, the word revive means to give life to. When you revive something that's dead, you, you bring it back to life. And so the Lord will help those who are dead in their sins and under the condemnation of God. If they call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, he will revive their dead spirit and make them alive. He will save their souls. But the same is true for the Christian whose heart has grown cold or hard. If we are contrite about our sin, he will revive our hearts as well. But his help doesn't end there. He just doesn't come to help us in the sense of reviving us because the rest of the chapter goes on to show us different ways it will help us. Of verses 16 to 18, he says, For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the Spirit shall fail before me. And the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness which I was wroth and smote him. I, I hid him me and was wroth and he went not on forwardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and I will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and his mourners. One of the things, one of the ways that the Lord will help us when he dwells with us is he will heal us and he will restore us and he will lead us whatever we need and then he will give us peace. Have a look in verse 9. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him that is afar off, that's we Gentiles, and to him that is near, that's the Jewish people, saith the Lord, and I will hear him. He will give us peace. He'll hear us, restore, heal us, restore us, lead us, he'll give us peace. Whatever we need, he'll be there to help. You know, we live in a pagan world that has no fear of God. And for those people, there's a word also. For those who don't repent of their sin and don't trust in the Lord and walk in his way, have a look in verses 20, uh, verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, which you cannot rest. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. We live in a pagan world. It has no fear of God, hence it has no peace. And uh, if there's one thing in the world that <laughs> all the pagans agree on is that the world needs peace. <laughs> but that's the last, that's, the, that's about the most hopeless thing that they could, they could hope for because there is no peace without God. But there is a high place that we can go. 
It's a high place in a sea of despair to find help. The Lord Jesus Christ is the high and lofty one, and he will help us. You know, Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who labour and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He'll give us the peace, the help that we need. So, great is the Lord. Great in his highness, in his habitation, in his holiness, in his house, and in his help. And to finish, I'd just like to share a, a little uh, personal note. And I didn't write this down, so I'll probably say something wrong. But, but I, I was thinking um, of the person that, you know, is the most significant person that's ever come into my life. And uh, I praise the Lord for so many wonderful people, but the most significant person that ever come in my life was a, a young woman called Lee Shelley. And uh, I remember the first day I saw her down there at Best Year, and that's where it happens, if you're not... If you're looking for a husband or wife, you should be out going to camp. <laughs> I remember the first day I saw her, she was sitting at the piano, and I thought, wow, <laughs> my heart took a beat. Uh, it's a leap, you know. And uh, so that began a little journey. You know what it's like, those uh, times when you, does she love me or doesn't she love me? And, uh, and there was times I thought I had her and times I, I thought I'd lost her, but eventually, one day, a day came and she agreed to marry me. And uh, she, she's, anybody that knows my wife would testify that she's a far better person than me. <laughs> she was marrying down and I was marrying up. But the blessing was she agreed to marry and we were married. And the thing is, I, think, I guess the, one of the most exciting things about that was she came to live in my house. The person that I, I loved and admired the most, the person that I wanted to be the most, she came to live in my house. And we were just, weren't just boarding, sharing the flat. This was our house. We, we were in that one flesh relationship. It's, it's our furniture. Uh, that's, that's, all that stuff is ours. This is our bank account, you know. Uh, everything, you see, it's not just two people, individuals, we become one flesh. And my whole life changed from that moment on that, we be, that she came to live in my house. I now had to consider her, not just myself. Uh, my whole life changed. I, I would say I wouldn't be half the man I would be if she hadn't come into my life. And I'd also have to say that I probably wasn't always the best husband, uh, probably because I'm a man, you know, that's the first thing. Uh, <laughs> that's already one cross. <laughs> but praise the Lord, she stuck with me. Uh, even through, even though I wasn't always the best kind of husband, uh, praise the Lord, she stuck with me and she still lives in my house. You know, that's like when we get saved, isn't it? We get married to the Lord. I have a friend who's never married, actually married a woman, but he said the day he trusted Christ, he married Jesus. And uh, we do really, because it's not just that the Lord doesn't come to live in a room in your house, he just doesn't come as a boarder. You now, he comes to dwell in you, and you in him, you become a new uh, creation in him. And everything has to change when God, when the Lord Jesus comes to dwell in your house, when he comes to dwell in your life. You need to take him into consideration. You need to put him first. You need to understand who he is. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and he has condescended to live in my house. And that should change everything that I do and everything that I say. We have a wonderful God. He's a great God. And uh, I hope that 
he's living in your house. I hope that he is your saviour. And if he is, then you let him change your life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this very brief reminder of who you are. And Lord, it's well beyond my ability to, Lord, share the wonder of, of who you are, especially uh, with this verse. But we, we get the idea of who it is, who you are. And I pray that we won't ever, Lord, think less of you. I pray that we won't have a small God. I pray that we won't take you for granted in any way. But Lord, we thank you for that wonderful condescension that you've deemed to dwell with us. And I pray that we would see the responsibility we have to know that God dwells in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.